change nationality is, is a very big decision, and especially to, to sail for Australia. As every Kiwi knows, is, is probably the worst thing you can do. By changing nationality, I could get all of those pieces of the puzzle together, and then I knew I had, it was in the best chance to uh, see if I could actually do it. After our first session out there, which was horrific really, because we just couldn't sail at all, um, he told basically that Belinda was too short and I was too tall and we were just, it was never going to work. To see them on the, you know, one of the boats, all dressed up in their best Australian finery was, it's still pretty funny, you know. I've ne I'll never see that again in my lifetime. My parents dressed in um, yellow and, what is it, yellow and green? Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and this week we're joined by someone who competed at two Olympic Games one for New Zealand and another for Australia. Jenny Armstrong went to the 1992 Barcelona Games under the New Zealand flag and finished fourth in the Europe dinghy. Eight years later, she was sailing for Australia and winning gold in the women's 470 with Belinda Stoll at home, in inverted commas, in Sydney. The pair are now members of Australia's Sailing's Hall of Fame. Armstrong's decision to switch allegiance is one that still irks her, but she says it's one she would still make today if facing the same circumstances. In today's interview, she goes into her early years, fulfilling a dream of competing at the Olympics, but then the realisation she wanted more and switching allegiance to Australia. She also talks about being written off by legendary coach Victor Kovalenko, winning Australia's first gold medal in sailing in 28 years, trying to learn the Australian national anthem right up until the moment she stepped onto the dais seeing her proud Kiwi parents decked out in Australian colours and her recent return home to Dunedin and move into the world of coaching. Jenny is a really interesting person and I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Hopefully you do too. Jenny Armstrong, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So next month marks 20 years since the 2000 Sydney Olympics, where you famously won gold for Australia with um, Belinda Stoll in the women's 470. How do you reflect on those games? Well, when someone told me it was 20 years, I was a bit shocked how long it's been. But, um, you know, I still remember that time with fond memories of, you know, spending time with Belinda and, and just putting our best performance down on the day so that you know that's probably my most uh, cherished memories from that time so more about the performance even than actually the the gold medal that you know you you got gifted at the uh, top step of the dais yeah it's funny because you think when you're trying to win a gold medal it's about the gold medal but once we had it it was about the performance on the day and sure the gold medals is lovely and i do get it out every now and then to show people but um it was definitely the, you know, the uh, how proud we were of our performance that week, putting it all together that we'd trained for years and years to uh, to put it together. 
Now, eight years earlier, of course, you sailed for New Zealand at the 92 Barcelona Olympics. Um, so what brought about the switch to Australia? I had sailed Europe dinghies for, at that stage, about seven or eight years. And I just was looking for a change. And I'd always wanted to sail double-handers. And, but the trickiest part, which probably a lot of your listeners will realise, is finding the right combination. So uh, just as luck would have it, I bumped into Belinda and um, we headed off and uh, sort of snowballed from there. You have said, though, that the, making that switch is a decision that still irks you to this day, but one you would make all over again. Why, why do you say that? To change nationality is, is a very big decision, and especially to, to sail for Australia. As every Kiwi knows, is, is probably the worst thing you can do. So I knew that in order for me to have a good chance to win a gold medal, I had to have certain things in place. One of them was a good crew, one of them was good coaching and support, and the other one which I thought was critical was lots of time at the... Uh, Olympic venue. So by changing nationality, I could get all of those um, pieces of the puzzle together. And then I knew I had it was in the best chance to uh, see if I could actually do it. Now, I'm really keen to explore this uh, a lot further, but I think it's probably a useful task just to kind of go back a little bit to understand how you got to this point um, and looking at the earlier days of your sailing career, because um, you had your sights set on the Olympics at quite a young age. Uh, I think you got your first P-class at 14 and, you know, you, you set your sights on the Olympics from that moment on or, or fairly close to that. What was it about the Olympics that appealed to you so much? Well, the where I first got the bug was obviously I loved sailing. I wasn't very good, but I loved it. And then the success New Zealand had at the 84 Olympic Games was just phenomenal success and I just thought that that I wanted to be a part of that and how so I just had that in my head uh, the whole time I actually met an old school friend who was uh, remembers me doodling Olympic rings on my school diary and telling me telling her at school I was going to win a gold medal and she was like bloody hell you just you did it so uh, it was yeah that was quite interesting that she remembered that from our school days, that I was pretty determined that that was going to happen. But at that stage, there weren't any classes for women sailors, meaning um, females had to compete against the men. So where did you see your best chance of achieving that? Yeah, that was a bit of a problem initially. Um, but I was going to sail in the fin. Uh, be like Russell Coates, he just won the gold in the fin class. So I thought, well, that was my single-handed boat, the closest to what? I could sail and um, that was how I was going to do it. Um, it's pretty deluded at that stage, but there weren't any options. So that was the only, the closest one I could have. But then at the 88 Olympics, the women's 470 came in and then it was announced that the Europe dinghy was going to be added for the 92 Barcelona Olympics. What did that decision do for you? Well, that made it a lot more realistic to actually go to the Games. Um, and the week that was announced, I actually, it, it was just perfect for me because I took my laser, I was sailing a full rig laser at that stage, uh, not very well, um, 
and I went down to Port Chalmers because I knew there was a guy who had a Europe dinghy and we went sailing in the morning and I beat him in the laser and then in the afternoon we actually swapped boats. So I went out in the Europe dinghy and he went out in my laser and um, at the end of the day we both drove home with different boats. So that was sort of how I first got into Europe dinghies and and got my first boat um, to to start my campaign towards the Olympics. So was that a bet or were, did you just convince him that you should swap boats? I think I was just convinced him. Um, yeah, he was. They he knew it was the women's class for the game, so he was happy to support me in in uh, the first step along the way. What was that sailing scene like in Dunedin at that stage? Um, sailing's not the number one sport in Dunedin. Um, it's it's quite a small community here, but very tight knit. So uh, I had a lot of support from the trailer sailor community and the the keelboats and then the dinghies as well um, but there's there's not huge numbers down here and there there well there still isn't today but um, we're trying to work on that but yeah it's you we're pretty much on your own how difficult then was it to get to the top of sailing out of Dunedin um it just well in those days people didn't travel to regattas so much so I would just train on madly in Dunedin and then once a year go up to the Nationals and see if I'd improved or got better. Um, So it was very much yearly cycles and you didn't travel as much but we had enough competition here in Dunedin at that stage to uh, to keep pushing people along and and improving as a group. At what point did you get to where you actually felt like you know I'm getting quite good at this. I'm getting making a bit of a name for myself and, and achieving some success, whether domestically or even internationally. Um, domestically, I was never. I was a mid fleeter. Um, Starlings. I think I got into the top ten once, so I was never really a standout. It was probably that first. I think they called them Olympic sales in those days, where the Europe dinghy had its first. Um, outing as a, a women's class and I came up from Dunedin and won the regatta so that was sort of my first um, big win in New Zealand and then I won a little bit of money to go over to a world championships um, so that was sort of my first outing on the world scene where I finished a solid mid-fleet so yeah <laughs> it was a slow start did it help that the Europe was such a new class and I guess everyone sort of seemingly started off fresh? Um, it did for everyone who wasn't European because the Europe dinghy was actually a very big uh, class in Europe and lots of European women and, and boys as well were sailing them. So it, anyone from outside Europe was at a disadvantage initially, um, but we soon caught that up. So what did you need to do to earn selection for the New Zealand team for those 92 Olympics in Barcelona? Um, it was just a one-off regatta off Takapuna. So seven races and uh, first past the post, um, one. So for someone who had been dreaming about going for so long, what was that moment like? Um, I remember it was quite a rocky, uh, well, rocky regatta, quite an up-and-down regatta 
emotionally because it was everything you dreamed and worked about for so long. So I um, had some ups and downs, but um, by the end I was, you know, had the bull by the horns and was, wasn't going to let anyone take it away from me. So then you go to Barcelona. What are your expectations heading into those games? Um, I didn't really have any. I was pretty much happy to be there, um, which was probably the first mistake we made. Um, so I was probably the most happy fourth place getter in the whole of the Olympics uh, because on the last race I'd gone from seventh to fourth and uh, was thrilled. Um, my coaching group knew that I could medal but um, didn't uh, make me believe that or tell me that enough. So uh, I probably finished where I deserved to with, uh, you know, because I never thought that I could win a medal. What age were you at that stage? Uh, 22. So do you think a little bit of naivety and, and inexperience was coming? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, your first Olympics, it's all wide you know, crazy, crazy regatta. But um, I think if I had have won a medal there, I probably wouldn't have done, continued or done anything else. So uh, it may have been a blessing in disguise. So what then was your plan after those Olympics? Uh, to go to the next Olympics was the next plan, <laughs> to uh, do better than fourth. Um, yeah, so that was, that was my plan. And for the next, uh, I actually moved to Holland. Um, I'd met Eric by then, my husband, and uh, or now husband, and um, I thought to be based in Europe would be a really good strategy to uh, to try to you know win win a medal at the next Olympics. So uh, that's where I, I lived and raced and sailed and headed back to New Zealand for selection regattas when it was necessary. And then um, yeah, that was the plan to go to the Olympics. And it was going okay, you know, you were achieving some decent success were you it was going great i was ranked number one in the world and all i had to do was win the selections in new zealand and what happened there i was second <laughs> i finished second i was super good at racing in big fleets and consistent racing but we probably hadn't quite focused enough on small fleets and and risk management in that kind of um smaller fleets requires you to win races and I was just I was good at getting up there but not not pushing it enough on those small regatta races so I finished second and Sharon Ferris went off to um, Atlanta to represent New Zealand. So how devastating was that? That was pretty pretty bad but um, you know that's the game we play is only one can go and and she was better on the day so uh off she went to Atlanta, and off I went to. Uh, I went and joined an all women's team to to sail around the world. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because you know, obviously, one door closed and another one opened, um, and that opened a few more doors afterwards. But um, how did that come about to join that team? Well, I had met Adrian. I was sitting in Holland, licking my wounds, wondering what to do next, and um, Adrian Kahalan called me, and she had sailed. Uh, for 70s a little bit that's how I met her for Australia and um, she was a very successful 18 foot skiff sailor in Australia um, and asked me if I wanted to be part of this all women's team to 
sail around the world. And I was doing nothing and they were going to pay me to sail. So I flew over to Southampton to help get this boat together to sail to um, Cape Town. Um, and that's where actually where I met Belinda. So she'd flown over from Australia to join the team and we were allocated the rigging. So we were looking after the mast of this giant boat. And um, so I spent a lot of time with Belinda initially and we headed off. And uh, that's 40 days later, we arrived in Cape Town. And then what happened with the campaign? Um, the campaign sort of struggled for funds. We did get the boat out to Australia, um, but gradually it was clear that we were running out of time and money and, and the funding wasn't coming through. So the, the, that boat campaign sort of fell apart. Um, and at the end of it, Belinda and I were in Sydney with her 470. So one day we just decided to go sailing and uh, went sailing in the 470 and I wanted to try the boat out and, you know, there was never any intention to sail together, but we just headed off and we were a great combination and she had crewed one for 20 worlds before as a crew, so she was an experienced crew. And, um, yeah, well, the rest is history, but we we ended up, a few months later, sort of agreeing to sail together, and I was look changed nationality, and then off we went. Well, interestingly, she was born in Zimbabwe. You're obviously Kiwi. What were your ambitions in those early days, and which country did you think you might sail for? Well, she was actually her mother's Australian, so she did have Australian citizenship, but we kind of justified it was we kind of met in between Zimbabwe and New Zealand in Australia and then we were going to sail for Australia. So, um, yeah, she um, she had come out to Australia for university, so she'd been in Australia for a while. And it was just kind of the logical uh, decision to make to, uh, you know, hope, give us the best chance of success. So in those days there was a two-year residency rule to qualify for a different country so you could go to the Olympics. Um, so, you know, whose idea was it to sort of pursue that uh, a little bit further? Was it, you know, you guys approaching Sailing Australia or was it them approaching you? Um, you know, when did that idea of Sailing for Australia really start to gain some momentum? Well, it was just really us or me deciding um, initially. Um, but as I got and once I got um, the citizenship, they had there has to be a, there's a lot more to it than you think. And I think nowadays it's even more complicated. But um, I had to have both sailing federations agree, New Zealand and Australia Olympic committees disagree, agree. ISAF, I think, as it was then, had to agree. And then the IOC had to sign off as well. So it was quite a, it's quite a long drawn out process. Um, and it was more complicated because I'd also been to the Olympics before representing another country um, but we got all those boxes ticked and I got my citizenship and um, we were away. So Australia would have been presumably pretty happy about it was did they put any pressure on you or to, to, to follow through with it? No not at all because they also they they were happy to have us but it wasn't um, and especially happy afterwards but they were, uh, they had a lot of, there was a lot of good 
70 talent in Australia, so they weren't begging for more at that stage, but um, little did they know. And what about the reaction from New Zealand? Um, mixed, I guess. Uh, my parents weren't thrilled, <laughs> but, um, you know, most of the sailors who actually, when they saw logically the reasons and everything, they could see that it was a good decision for me. Um, just, you know, in a perfect world, not ideally what what I wanted to do. And what about in terms of the New Zealand Federation? Were, were they happy enough to let you go? Yeah, they were supportive. I mean, I think they f- wished I didn't go, but they didn't stand in my way to, to making this move for myself. So you then teamed up with a Russian coach by the name of Viktor Kovalenko, um, and he's gone on to be known as the medal maker because he's coached sailors to, I think it's 10 Olympic medals, including six gold medals and 18 world titles. So what did you and Belinda make of him when you first met him? Um, when we first met him, there was actually a squad of 10 for 70, so five women, five men teams. Um, he could hardly speak English in those days. It was really broken English and um, there was lots of miscommunication just because he didn't know what we were what we were saying with our accents and we couldn't understand him so it was a lot of a lot of learning initially to understand him and his English improved so it got better and better um but we knew he had you know just come off the Atlanta Olympics where he'd coached the Ukrainian teams to a gold and a bronze so you know you knew he had the goods and it was just a matter of figuring out how to communicate with him what did he make of you? Um, he, uh, after our first session out there, which was horrific, really, because we just couldn't sail at all, um, he told basically that Belinda was too short and I was too tall and we were just, it was never going to work. So um, he was pretty adamant on that. He had a picture in his head of what a 470 team should look like and we were definitely both not fitting that mold and it was pointless to start so that was um that was a great start and uh, it's definitely we both were determined to prove him wrong <laughs> and how did you how did you go about proving him wrong just uh hard work just showing up every day putting in the hours the effort the time and and just it's ours. There's no, there's no shortcuts. Um, and just, we were both determined and we knew we had this, the ability. We just needed to, to work on our skills and sailing together and, and, uh, get it together. I think, um, I heard somewhere that you didn't actually miss a day of training in two years and you often trained into the evening. Um, how difficult was that? And, and, you know, were the days when you just were tempted to Maybe Polisicki? I don't remember ever actually wanting to do that. Um, we were just so focused. We would work mornings till about one o'clock and then go sailing. Um, you know, we're sailing five days a week, all day weekends, and then three day, three afternoons a week, afternoon evenings. And um, I don't remember because we were both so determined. We just didn't want to let each other down in our sort of mission to uh, – um, 
to to go to the games and there was also a squad you've got to also remember there was another four women's teams who were all putting in you know similar efforts and um so it was a real um every time we went sailing it was a real competition to uh to try and get to the top of that little pile and how did you stack up in that pile initially oh about number four of five (laughs) so um yeah we we gradually improved and I think that was just a factor of our determination and the time we put in as we and and how quickly we learned the boat so in terms of you and Belinda what was it about that partnership that worked I think initially it was really helpful that she had crewed before so she didn't need to learn how to crew I just had to learn how to how to helm and how to sail a double-handed boat um it took a it took probably a year for us to work out our roles in the boat with um who does what and decision making and that kind of thing and and we made a few mistakes along the way but I think that we were just really good friends and the time we spent sailing across the ocean you know talking about the Olympics we were best buddies we actually lived together for a long time so my husband myself and Belinda so we were just joined at the hip and we just were you know on a mission so you you talked about those roles what would just essentially what was your role what was her role in the end it worked out well I was pretty much doing most of the tactics she's she fed information and she was she's the speed of the boat so her balance keeping that boat balanced and, and going and feeding information, keeping me calm was in those critical moments um, and keeping us, just keeping the motivation going in the boat. She was very keen, always very um, helpful for me to keep that main sheet going in and out, <laughs> encouraging me to keep going. So you did start to uh, make some progress because you were ninth at the 470 World Champs in 1999 and then second in, in 2000, I guess, how encouraging was that um, to see that sort of progress? Um, the ninth was really significant because um, as I wasn't a New Zealand, uh, Australian citizen, I wasn't eligible for any funding until that ninth. So um, that was really, really significant. And all, we were also the best Australians at that regatta. So that was also really significant too. Um, this. After that, we um, we actually, in the lead up to the games, we never finished outside the top three. So we were right up there, the second at the Worlds, we were first at the Europeans, we won a whole lot of the World Cup events. So we were, we knew that we were doing a lot of things right and we were, you know, going to be a contender at the games. Was there quite a bit of hometown pressure going into those Sydney Olympics? Um. Not really because no one knew knew us and no one really knew sailing. So it wasn't really any expectation. There was expectations from us. And the the mission, what we had from the 92 games where I never thought I could win a medal was actually something we were really wary of. And also in those last three years, there was never a moment where I wasn't 
allowed to believe that we couldn't win a gold medal. So we spent a lot of time on that sort of psychology side um, to make sure that, you know, we weren't going to fall short, just be, not because of skills, but just because of the psychology of it. So we were confident. We knew we had the skills. We just knew we had to put it together on the day. So you're obviously sailing on home waters um, or, or waters that you trained on every day. So how big an advantage was that for you? Um, for the first four, four races, not much because we were actually offshore and quite far offshore. So those four races were was pretty the um, same for everyone. But as the regatta went on, we got further into the harbour and more much more familiar with conditions so yeah you you have a there's a comfort knowing that you've seen things before however it was different at the olympics because there was no manly ferries all the boats were all off to the side so you'd never seen sydney harbour so flat the water so flat it's normally so many boats coming and going so it was it was the same but different Okay. Um, Melinda Henshaw and Jenny Egnock competed for New Zealand in those in that women's 470 at those Olympics, uh, eventually finishing 11th. What was it like for you, I guess, maybe even in that first race, lining up a, against a, a New Zealand boat? Um, well, we've, we had raced them a lot before, and they're, they're probably some of our better friends on the, on the um, circuit. So it wasn't really... Um, you know, New Ze- a New Zealand boat, they were just friends, which was with most of the fleet. You'd spent so much time with them. Um, so I didn't, that didn't feel weird for me at all. And you know, that at Olympics, the media interest has always ramped up a lot more. Was that, you know, your switch to Australia ever talked about in the media ahead of, ahead of the Games? I think it was talked, not ahead, but um, during and after it was sort of focused on a little bit. Um, but, you know, Australia was very happy to claim me and New Zealand also after the game. So <laughs> I can uh, take a bit from each. Funny how that works out. Now, you, yeah. <laughs> you sailed a boat called Ugly Duckling and there's got to be a story behind that. I mean, did it have anything to do with the fact that you were from New Zealand, Belinda from Zimbabwe and Victor was Russian? No, but that would have been a good story. No, the, the, the idea behind the Ugly Duckling was she was an ugly grey boat and our sort of fairy tale was that she was going to turn into this beautiful swan during the Olympics. So that was kind of the the story behind the ugling duckling. How prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and you mentioned this, um, you started off well winning the first race, but then had a, a couple of deep ones. Um, I think once you were 18th in the 19 uh, fleet race. So how did that affect perhaps your mindset and your approach? Yeah, we did start off well and winning the first race. Um, and Tom Tom King, who was the Australian 470 rep there, he had this theory that if you won the first race of regatta, you wouldn't win the regatta. So we're already up against it because he was pretty – he'd seen so many times he'd done this. Um, after we had – that 18th out of 19th it was we were still offshore and we had one more race at that day and we were both like this is this is the moment in the regatta where we have to um we either do another shitty race or we 
you know, pull our socks up and get it together. So we, I think the next race we got a fifth or a sixth. So that had sort of stopped the, um, stopped the bleeding. And then we were able to go away and come back the next day and, and put together some more, some better results. Do you think that the Jenny Armstrong of eight years previously may not have been able to do that? This, this was showing your experience. For sure not. Um, experience does help you a lot along the way. Um, but yeah, that was a, a, one of the key moments in, in that regatta for us. So you did back it up with some solid results and then took over the leaders' yellow bibs in race eight, I think, of the 11 race series. Um, do you remember what you did with the old bib? Yeah, well, you had a, just a AUS bib, I think. Um, and then we were presented with this yellow one. So in front of Belinda, I was like, all right, well, we don't need this one anymore. And I threw in the AUS bib in the rubbish. And uh, she was a bit shocked, but I was also sort of, um, I don't know, just to show the, how confident I was that no one was going to take this yellow bib off us. And um, she drew confidence from that. And um, it's a shame I lost that one, but... Um, you know, it was very symbolic at the time and, uh, well, turns out no one took it off us. So that was lucky because I'd lost it. <laughs> I was going to say, did anyone fetch it out of the bin just in case? I don't know. Someone might have, but I don't know. <laughs> did um, Belinda also put hers in the bin as a show of solidarity? I don't think she did, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to ask her that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> So you went into that last race um, with a handy nine-point lead over the American combination, and I don't think in those days you had um, double points medal races. So do you remember what you were feeling heading into that race? We actually we had a sort of false start because the, the day before we were meant to have our last race and the weather conditions weren't right, so... We were actually delayed another 24 hours, so it had been a really long wait. Um, we were feeling pretty good, especially when the nice northerly came in um, and the Americans had people right on their tail. So we knew they were looking behind them. Um, and from conversations later later on with those girls, they, they thought we were gone anyway, so they weren't even worried about us. But we just knew we had to put a top 10 result together and People could finish wherever they finished and um, um, we would be fine. Um, so we were just focusing on trying to put a nice race together was, was our um, plan for that day. And the windier it got, the, the better it was for us. Was that your sweet spot with, with Bigger Breeze? Yeah, any, anything in that last year, anything over 15 knots, we, would just, we were just faster. And um, so we would really dominant so you can see where our confidence would have come from in that race now you talked about the focus was on a top 10 but a focus during the race there was a fair bit of debate on your boat um what was that all about well even whatever race you race you still need to follow the get the basics right and we had a bit of a discussion about how many laps or discussion slash argument how many laps we'd done and how many we needed to go. And usually we would check in and so I was like, so up, down and around and Belinda said something else and 
It was like, are you sure? Are you sure? Yell. This is all yelling at each other. And then, uh, you know, a bit of quiet and thinking about it. And then, okay, you're right, let. So um, it was a bit of a, there was probably a few, there was a few minutes of big discussion about how many laps, um, but we, we got it right in the end. I guess um, the fact that you were in lead meant that you couldn't play follow the leader anyway. Exactly. Well, that, we never thought about that to drop back to second to uh, see where they go. But, uh, yeah, that is the problem when you're in the lead. You've got to know where you're going. And I guess with it being the last race and a gold medal, the probable outcome, you didn't really want to look like a couple of gooses who didn't know how many laps you were supposed to do, right? Well, you never want to look like a goose, but especially then, yeah. So what then was it like to cross the line and, and know you'd won gold? Um, initially, it was quick. We better get the spinnaker down. We're going to crash into the Manly Ferry. But it was just an unbelievable believable feeling of satisfaction and just a job well done. And, you know, there was people cheering and boats tooting and just incredible feeling of um, satisfaction was the and happy and just yeah all the emotions all at once did it may not have been initially but it sort of did you sort of think back to when you were a 14 year old and had that first olympic dream of winning the gold medal um yeah i mean it is it is nice that you know what you what we had or i had dreamt about as a 14 year old was actually not this crazy pie in the sky um dream it was actually something we could i could put into action and, and achieve so that was you know that's where it was all very rewarding that all those years of sailing out into Dunedin in the winter and, and all the time and effort was was all worthwhile. That was also Australia's first gold medal in 28 years and first by any female sailors so I'm guessing that you got a fair bit of media and public attention following that. Yeah and it was you know, live on TV, so everyone knew about it. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And then our the men's four seventy Australian men's four seventy also won gold. So it was um, an awesome time for for sailing in in Australia. Now you mentioned your parents um, earlier on in the in the chat, um, and that they weren't all that happy about your switch to Australia. Now, they'd flown in from Dunedin to see you in gold, and um, I read somewhere that your mum's face was painted green and gold zinc and your dad had an Aussie T-shirt on. Um, did you, did, you know, have a bit of a double take or did you have a laugh about that imagery? Yeah, well, it, it's funny, though. Um, I had to really convince them to come over to the Games because it was like, this is it, Mum. You know, I have a good chance and you will kick yourself if you're not here. You can stay at our house, you can drive our car. We bought them tickets for the opening ceremony, just wanted them to see what it was like because they had not seen me race um, for many, many years. So um, I was like, this is a once in a lifetime chance. So to see them on the, you know, one of the boats all dressed up in their best Australian finery was it's still pretty funny because, um, you know, I've ne I'll never see that again in my lifetime. My parents dressed in um, yellow and, what's it, yellow and green? Green and gold. 
Green and gold. There you go. See? You're not a true blue Aussie, are you? I'm a Kiwi. <laughs> um, is there any photographic evidence of your parents? Yes. Yep, yep, yep. You pull it out every now and then to give a... Yeah. <laughs> um, you also told me last year that you were still learning the Australian National Anthem right up to the moment you climbed on the medal dais. Um, did you sing it? Did you mumble it? Did you mouth it? I think I started out strong and then faded away. <laughs> um, yeah, I never, didn't really know the national anthem um, when we before we got the medal, but it, that didn't seem that important for me at that stage. So, all joking aside, though, what was that moment like for you? It was um, where the medal ceremony was, was on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, and it was actually a really, really special um event because it was the only medal ceremony at the Olympics where people could come and watch for free so there was thousands of people there um you know people I knew and people you know just people from Sydney so it was a huge atmosphere and then there were they had a whole bunch of medal ceremonies all together so and then belting out the national anthem twice for the two for 70 teams it was a yeah it was a real a real moment, something I won't forget. And actually, um, a couple of years ago, I did meet up with Belinda in Sydney and we went back to the, that spot. So that was quite nice to go back and sort of remember the, that moment where we were together. Was that moment when you felt most Australian in your life? <laughs> yeah, probably. Let's say that's the moment. Um. <laughs> so how did, how did life change for you? after that if at all um I guess after the sort of Olympic um euphoria died down and we went on some parades around the country it kind of just got back to normal um Belinda actually went off to have shoulder surgery straight after those games um so we were and we hadn't really made a commitment to keep going or not we just were going to give it some time and see how things went. So it was sort of just back to normal life and um, just figuring out what we were going to do for the next, if anything, for the next Olympic cycle. And you did. You did commit. You went to Athens four years later uh, with Belinda, where, in your own words, you were terrible. Um, yeah. What happened? <laughs> I think we got a few things. It's different, different scenario Um once you have a gold medal, it kind of changes things. And there were probably a few things that we should have done differently. I think we didn't realise the um, how important it was to have a good team around you. And Tom King and Mark Turnbull were probably a much, much more important part of our team than we realised. And we just didn't get that support with the other men's team. Um, so... That was probably our big error in that uh, um, campaign towards those games. It was also it was also not perfect conditions for us, but that's you know that's neither here nor there. But yeah, it just wasn't wasn't meant to be, and we didn't put tick all the right boxes. And it, but actually, after going to those games, it made us realise how well we had done the campaign into Sydney, and how perfect it has to be to win a medal they don't just hand them out so it really is a reward for 
good preparation, good and good performance on the day. Well, it's good that you recognise that. So you did, uh, I think you retired fairly soon after. Um, was that an easy decision to make? Um, yeah, I didn't really have any plans, regardless of the of our result there. I, I was sort of reaching my, my motivation levels weren't as high as they needed to be to be successful at that level. And we also wanted to start a family and that's uh, trickier to combine with Olympic sailing. Um, so you moved to Canada, didn't you? Um, when, when did that happen and, and what did you do there? In 2010, we moved to Canada. Um, so Eric, my husband, got a job coaching with the Canadian sailing team and we thought it was Canada's lovely and it, the kids were still quite young. It was a nice opportunity to um, live somewhere else. And then you moved back to Dunedin in 2016. So what prompted that move? Um it was always sort of in the, the back of our minds. And after living in Canada for a while, we, we realised it wasn't um, where we wanted to be long, long term. So after the Rio Olympics, we um, moved back to Dunedin. We knew it would be a great lifestyle for the kids and closer to family. And um, yeah, though all those sort of mature reasons. <laughs> and now and now you're found down at um, the Ravensboard Boating Club, like your local club with your family. Your son, certainly I know sales. Um, I'm not sure about your other the kids, but um, you help out with the coaching there. What sort of role do you play with the, the club? So I've been, since I got back here, I mean, one of the reasons to come back was to help support sailing and, you know, Dunedin and the, you know, southern region. And um, so I've been involved with the Learn to Sail program there. I'm sort of help run that. And um, then we we have the Learn to Race program as well, which is where um, some of the more advanced sailors are, are learning. So we're just trying to support sailing through the whole region. I've been doing a bit of coaching up in Christchurch with the 420 squad up there um, over the summer and, and just trying to get more kids into sailing, keep them in sailing. Now, you also coach, you're one of the coaches um, for the NZL Sailing Foundation youth team at last year's Youth Sailing World Champs, uh, working with Seb Menzies and Blake McLashen, who um, claimed the gold in the boys' 420. Um, you know, what, what was that experience like to see a couple of really promising young guys to fulfil their potential at that event? I think I, you know, as I'm not sailing competitively much myself these days, it's it's actually really, really rewarding to see other people reach their potential and to be a little piece of piece of contributing to to helping them get there. I get real satisfaction from that. I have sleep coaching is actually I have sleepless nights. I'm a wreck watching them, but um, I do really enjoy it when they. Um, when they put it together and, and achieve their goals, it's it's really rewarding. How far do you want to take it, this coaching lark? Oh, well, you'll just see what opportunities come up. But um, I do really enjoy it and um, I enjoy coaching, you know, motivated people because um, – and and to because I know there's lots of areas I can help them and especially at regattas where I've got all my experience and – be ashamed to see that go to waste but um 
yeah, it was a, a fun experience with Seb and Blake and the girls there as well and, and the wider team. It was a real, real fun time. So any um, comical moments in your coaching career and maybe if I can re- rejig your memory a little bit of perhaps looking at the wrong boats at an international regatta? Yeah. Yeah, that happened at the first 420 Worlds I coached at in Newport. I uh, was watching the um, – They've all got these flags on their boats and it wasn't until halfway through the race I realised I was watching the Australian boats instead of the Kiwi boats. So, uh, yeah, that was – I had a little giggle to myself in the coach boat and um, it's like, oh, we need to adjust the flags to coach the right people. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got the hang of that now. <laughs> Who was doing better in that race? Well, it was the Aussies, so that was a bit annoying, but, Yeah. <laughs> Um, you, you've also continued a little bit of your own sailing um, in the laser radial. Um, so what are your sort of ambitions there? Yeah, when I got back to Dunedin, I, I knew I wanted to do some more sailing myself. So the laser radial was the obvious choice. And there's a real nice master's um, fleet down here. So we'll get sort of six, eight, ten boats out on a weekend. So that's it's nice racing. Um, but I, I'm keen to – I was – to come to to go to the nationals and and have a crack at the winning the masters and then once it goes to a world's where it's a nice place nice tropical warm place i'd love to have a crack at the masters worlds and see what i can do there for what country new zealand i'm back <laughs> good, good if you have if you have me <laughs> oh yes i'm sure we will um, so I guess the sailing landscape in this country is quite different to the one um, when you were growing up in Dunedin. You know, with all your experience, what would you say to a, a youngster today? And I guess especially a young female with the ambitions of making it in the sport. Um, sport certainly, like you say, is a lot different to what it was when I was a youngster. But, you know, and, for, and now I'm from doing a bit of coaching, I, I think the most important thing for anyone is just bring the motivation. I always say to my sailors, I'll match your motivation, but I won't bring it. So I think if you, if I see a motivated sailor, I will put, I'll match that motivation and help them along the way. If you have to drag someone along, you just, it's, it's no fun for anyone. Ask for help. Everyone, you know, you always, most people are happy to give advice or give help for, for motivated people. So, yeah, that would be my key key uh, point there. And I guess with your background, it's uh, about taking opportunities as well. Exactly. Don't just say yes to everything. <laughs> um, yep, try everything. And then, um, you know, once you sort of figure out where, where you actually want to aim for, Make a plan and go for it. Well, it's been a fascinating account of your um, sailing career, uh, part of your life, really. Um, but before I let you go, um, I need to ask you your worst wipeout ever. It's a section of the show we ask all guests on the on the podcast. So, Jenny uh, Armstrong, what is your worst wipeout ever? Well, it's hard to pick a worst wipeout because there's probably been so many but I would this is probably the 
one that sticks in my mind and it it was really early on in the 470 when it was sailing on um, Sydney Harbour and the southerly had come in so there was quite a big swell rolling down and I was learning how to sail the 470 but there's an extra person in the boat that you need to tell when you're going to tack so I just tack and we capsized because Belinda's still on the wire and we'd we'd had quite a rough day so we were just tacked just upside down both sitting on the bottom of the boat hugging the centerboard and there's keelboats rushing past us asking us if we're all right and I just stood up on the boat and said we're all right we're going to the Olympics don't you know and um, that was quite one of the moments I remember not really a spectacular wipeout but significant in the course of our 470 campaign you're quite prophetic aren't you and in, in some of the things you say yeah that's it's good and obviously belinda still wanted to sail with you after that mistake yeah i started talking a little bit more then <laughs> to let her know when we were going to tack it's funny how communication can work sometimes isn't it yes yeah yeah, well, as I say, it's been great to have you along uh, onto Broadreach Radio. So I really thank you for your time and um, good luck with what you're doing down in Ravensbourne, but also good luck with your own sailing, uh, your own sailing, your own coaching. Um, we'll certainly look forward to seeing your name again on um, on the leaderboard um, with the NZL right beside it. I'll do my best. <laughs> Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Let us know what you think by emailing michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz or you can also write in telling us your worst wipeout ever. In the meantime, catch you next Friday.